0: sometimes in our, uh, in this type of teaching, when you're going verse by verse, you can kind of lose your way, especially when there is so much that's going on. Um, I have been uh, going verse by verse on Wednesdays and going thematically on Sundays. And so last Sunday, uh, we tied this into this revival that's been taking place. Uh, They finally ended the public portion of the revival at the university, um, Asbury University. But uh, I wanted us to see that this is an example of Jesus pouring out the spirit. And so you saw in the little clip there from the Gospel of John movie, um, John giving that testimony that the one upon whom the spirit descends and remains, that is the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we were uh, as of, uh, Sunday, uh, we, uh, we stopped with, um, John talking about Jesus and now we're going to move to the first disciples. So take a look in your copy of scripture, or if you don't have a copy of scripture, uh, you'll see it on the screen over here. Those of you that are online will see it over here on my, my right and to the left of the screen for you as well. This is John 1, 35 through 39 in the New American Standard Bible. Again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now he's already said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he says, behold, the Lamb of God, second time. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So these are two of John the Baptist's disciples and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, well, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. So let's back up and talk about what a disciple is. Uh, and it's very rude. A disciple is a student, um, Dallas Willard likes to use the term apprentice. So when we think of a student, we think of somebody that's sitting and listening, kind of like you are or in a classroom. Um, But we're referring, when we talk about the disciple of someone like John the Baptist or Jesus, we're referring to someone who not only learns from that person, but learns how to be more like that person right? I don't want you to be more like me. I want you to be like Jesus. I want you to be a disciple of Jesus, even though I'm his stand in to teach you. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, many teachers were peripatetic. That means that they walked as they taught. They led their students from location to location. So there was something that was actually happening physically happening that symbolized what was happening in their lives. They were following this person's example as they were literally following this person around. And we see that in our text here. Um, Jesus' first disciples, as I mentioned, had been disciples of John the Baptist. John pointed out who Jesus is and they followed the Lord home. Uh, I say home. They just, uh, some texts say, uh, where are you living? Others say, where are you staying? It's obvious that Jesus didn't have this permanent place uh, at this point in time. This is just where he was staying. Well, one of the two that followed him, one of these two disciples of John the Baptist was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he becomes one of the 12 apostles. Question is, who would you rather follow, John the Baptist or Jesus? Jesus. There may be someone who taught or shared their faith in Jesus with you, but you need to follow their example, not them. This is why Jesus himself commanded that we call no man on earth our primary teacher or father. Jesus is our teacher and Lord. He uses people like preachers and teachers, but we don't follow them. Rather, we imitate them if they follow Christ. That's what the apostle Paul said. Uh, if you remember back to when we were studying in First Corinthians, uh, he said, "Follow me as I follow Jesus." There's a lot of unhealthy hero worship among Christians today. We've turned pastors and worship leaders into celebrities. Honestly, it's borderline or outright idolatry. Uh, I was looking. I don't even know which church this was. You know, we you know put our lyrics and stuff like that up on the screen, but. This is a church that had a, you know, a huge multimedia um, presentation. And so there's this this girl that's singing, you know, in the worship band. And there is a giant, giant image projected of her behind her. It's just perverse. It's disturbing. That's not what we're about. Interestingly... Contrast that with the revival that's going on right now. Um, And this is in multiple campuses, even though I told you the Asbury revival, um, they've, uh, as of tonight, they're ending the public services that have been going on in that chapel because the kids have got to get back to school, right? They've got to learn. And so they've moved it off campus there. But there are now multiple, multiple campuses where the same thing is happening. There's no celebrity leader, there's no evangelist, there's no preacher. Most of the time, it's you know you hear testimonies from people that went to the Asbury revival and they said it was just you know um, their their fluorescent lights were on. There were no special light lighting in the room, no smoke machines, no stage lights, and the, as I mentioned to you Sunday, the uh, the bands that were playing, the worship leaders um, were. They're just kids, or like college kids. So you know they have a variety of different talents, but that's not what these kids are being attracted to, right? This idolatry's got to go. Well, you know what? Uh, Craig preached a masterful message about this when he introduced John the Baptist. We see the last of John at the end of. Uh, uh, it's so confusing when you're in John's Gospel and you're talking about John the Baptist because you never know which John I'm talking about. In chapter three of John's Gospel we hear the last of John the Baptist. And one of the last things he says as his disciples are complaining that Jesus' disciples are now baptizing, they're like, hey, he, you know, the man that you pointed out, I mean, he's, he, he is baptizing. Well, it says very clearly, Jesus didn't baptize himself. He himself didn't baptize, right? He didn't want people to be confused because Jesus is the one that's gonna baptize in the Holy Spirit. He's gonna pour out the Spirit, right? Um, but his disciples baptized and they were following John's pattern. You repent and you were baptized in the Jordan River. And so John's disciples, his faithful disciples are complaining. And what does John the Baptist say? He must increase, I must decrease. And that's the way we need to all be. That's really a perfect message for Lent. Today is Lent, right? Uh, the first day of a, period of fasting that uh, ends on Easter Sunday. It's actually like 46 days because technically Catholics take Sunday off. (laughs) You know, whatever you're fasting, eh, you can take Sunday off. It's good. Sunday's a celebration day, so that's fine. So yeah, yeah, I mean, you can do that. You can take Sunday off. Um, But that makes it 40 days, right? If you take the six Sundays off. In any event, um, Lent is a time of repentance. It's a time of considering, okay, um, you know, how can I learn to deny myself, right? Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and then he can follow me. So how do I learn to do that? Well, the practice of Lent has often been to find something that is near and dear to your heart and give it up right? For that time period. So people give up alcohol. They give up, I've given up coffee a n- number of years, which is really a pain for me. Um, I have to find a way to, to trickle off the caffeine. I give up the coffee, but then I get black tea and then a little less black tea because otherwise I'll get one of those massive caffeine withdrawal headaches and it will last Forever, it's bad, right? Sure. But you can. It's it's good to cycle off these things, right? So you cycle off. Um, uh, this year, uh, I'm uh, giving up beer at Intrinsic. So I went over there today and drank fizzy water, and that was it. So, and watched two guys play this little card game over there. So yeah, that's my that's my thing this year. But I'm I'm saying that because this is a good opportunity for us to talk about it. Uh, John the Baptist was perfectly willing to defer to Jesus. Remember, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Um, It should be noted that not everyone who started following Jesus finished, right? There were people that quit. Now, I don't know for sure. Um, There are two disciples of John that are mentioned here, but only one is named. Andrew is the one that is named. So we don't know if the other one continued to follow Jesus or not, right? But as we'll see in a moment, Andrew immediately goes and gets his brother. Um, now, there are some who believe that the other disciple, the other of John the Baptist's disciples that is not named was John. And that's the position that is taken in the movie that you saw. The fellow with the skull cap that you keep seeing over and over again, I don't know if you've been paying attention to these clips that I've been playing, but that in... The the Gospel of John movie is supposed to be John, so you know they're taking that position. So that's possible. But I thought it would be um, poignant and important to step away and say, just because somebody starts following Jesus doesn't mean they finish, and just because somebody starts following Jesus doesn't mean they're saved. Right? You receive the Spirit; He transforms your heart. You're reborn. You become a new person in Christ and then you follow Jesus. It's not in your own strength, but discipleship is important. And I think we, we, hopefully in this church, I preach grace enough to you that you realize that you're not saved by your effort, right? You don't work your way into the kingdom. You don't read enough Bible verses, pray enough prayers, go to church enough times, give enough money to where you get into heaven. You get into heaven because you put your faith in Jesus, right? Uh, Craig mentioned this in one of his sermons as well. In John chapter 6, I think it is, um, some people ask Jesus, what work do we need to do to to work the works of God? What do we need to do to do the work of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's where it starts, okay? You put your faith in Jesus. Go all the way back to John 1:12, back in the prologue, right? Back up, uh, Some verses in chapter one, John 1, 12 says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, even to those who believed on his name. Well, when we receive Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. When they received Jesus, they received an actual physical person right there in front of them, right? They received him, they accepted him, but they have to believe in his name, and that faith has to endure. So discipleship is not identical with salvation. Someone who is saved must be a disciple. That's it's it's very very important, right? That's the whole process of what we would call sanctification. You become more and more like Jesus, but if you're not following Jesus, you're not going to become more and more like Jesus. Right? It's very important. Um But not everybody that follows Jesus is saved because there's plenty of people that come to church and they listen here and there and whatever. You know, it's very interesting to me and I'm not trying to, you know, uh, hopefully I don't see anybody on their phone. So you're you're not gonna think that I'm talking about you right now. But uh, for some time, there were several people in our church that during preaching and during music were just constantly on their phone. And several of those people are gone. And at least one of those people isn't following Jesus or in church or doing anything anymore. Listen, man, if you're here, I'm I'm grateful you're here. Okay, if you're watching online, I'm grateful you're paying it, but you got to pay attention, right? Um, If we're going to be students of Jesus, we have to learn. (laughs) And, you know, You're a teacher, you're a teacher. Learning means your students have to pay attention. If they don't pay attention, they don't learn anything. Sadly, uh, when I was a math student, I didn't pay attention. The only class I ever failed all the way through public school was one semester of algebra, and it's because I just didn't pay attention. I wonder what kind of grades we're getting in the School of Christ, right? Right? Interestingly, as I said, there are those who stop following Jesus, some stop at the be- at the beginning, some stop in the middle, some don't make it to the end. Um, eerily, John 666, yeah, John 666 6, 6, says this: As a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. Well, because he was teaching some things that were really hard for them to receive and understand. So they just turned away. They didn't even want to be seen with Jesus any longer. It doesn't say some, it says many, many of his disciples, right? Judas, of course, is the most tragic example of a disciple who not only turned away, but turned against his master. This is a warning to all of us. Not everyone who enters the school of Christ graduates. There are plenty of dropouts, and many who sign up but fail to matriculate. And one of the two, you know, disciples of John here might have been that. Uh, and there are not many active disciples that we see today. There are you know, plenty of people that go to church, but as far as being an active learner, right? Do you read the Word? Do you pray? Do you try to become a better person by following Jesus? Are we making an effort? These are disciples, right? Um, Now, interestingly, throughout John, we see him translating words that we already know, but they were Aramaic words. So the first one is rabbi. Do you know what rabbi means? Yeah, you you probably know. You've heard it enough. It means teacher. Well, that's what he says here. John translates it. Uh, The gospel of John also translates Messiah, uh, just a little further down. It says, which means Christ. So he's translating, that is the writer of the gospel of John is translating these Aramaic terms into Greek, which is a pretty good indicator that John's audience, the intended recipients were uh, Greek speakers or Gentiles rather than Jews who would have been familiar with Aramaic. Now, I love this. Um. when the, the two disciples approach Jesus, what does Jesus ask them? He says, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? See, Jesus is looking for seekers. It wasn't just that, uh, you know, they were looking to be entertained by him. They wanted to figure out if he was really the one. So what they? he says, hey, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And they said, where are you staying? Well, here's the interesting thing. This is uh, common, not just in uh, Greek culture and Jewish culture, but also in Japanese culture, that you would actually live with your teacher, That sounds exhausting to me, (laughs) right? But you would actually live with your teacher. And uh, and, uh, you guys know that I teach karate. In uh, a karate dojo, uh, you know, uh, these would be very, very small training halls with a small group of disciples, students, and they would live there. Right, And as you saw, if you remember way back to the old Karate Kid movie in the 80s, right? Daniel comes to his maintenance man who he finds out is a, you know, a karate master and he's, Daniel's getting beat up by all of these kids. And so the karate master is gonna teach him. So he says, okay, well, you come over to my house and he's got this really amazing house. The front of it doesn't look like anything at all right? It has just a bunch of old cars parked out in front. But when you go through the house, here's this beautiful Japanese garden out there. And Daniel's, wow, this is awesome. Well, this is when you get all of these different tasks that the master has him do. You remember wax on, wax off? Surely you remember that. It's one of the most famous things from the movie, right? Right, And uh, sand of the floor, sand of the floor and paint to the fence, paint to the fence, right? Well, all of these were movements that he was teaching Daniel, right? He was getting that into his muscle memory by having him do these movements, but he, the, Daniel was also doing work for the master, earning his keep. These people would live together, right? So where are you staying? And he says, come and see. I think if you understand a relationship with Jesus, he doesn't come in and out. He's not an occasional visitor. We invite Jesus into our heart to live with us. And when he comes, he doesn't stay in the guest bedroom. (laughs) Jesus is the one who takes charge of the house. You stay in the guest bedroom. I remember uh, I had a roommate one time, says back when I was in seminary and I was a youth minister at First Baptist Church, the Colony, And uh, I rented a duplex. And there was another young man um, in our group. And it was obvious to me that the Lord wanted to use this kid, uh, this young man, to preach. Um, Sadly, uh, the last time I checked, he's one of these disciples that gave up. But at that time, I had high hopes. Well, you know, I was renting the house. It was in my name. But I gave him the big room. I gave him the master bedroom. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back or anything. When Jesus comes in, you give him the master bedroom. You give him charge of the house. That's what's supposed to be happening. Um, So um, come and see. I think Jesus would uh, say that to you, right? Uh, Jesus is inviting them to fulfill their curiosity about him. That's perhaps would be a better way for you to share the gospel with people, right? Why don't you come and see? Come to church and see. You don't have to convince them of your point of view. Just love them. Share what Jesus is doing in your life and say, come and see. Hang out with me. When I go over here and hang out at Intrinsic, most of the people that are sitting next to me at the bar, they don't go to church. I don't know what their profession is as far as Jesus is concerned. I don't jump up and down on them about it, you know? I'm not there to sell them anything. I'm there to shine the light. I go over here, cross the street to the tavern. I usually don't sit at the bar over there because it's a little bit too rowdy. Their language is a little rough, right? But the same thing, I go over there to shine the light. Come and see. That's what we should be saying to people. Then it says that it was about the 10th hour. Uh, here's another uh Point regarding John's gospel. Okay, so I've pointed out that he's translating all of these Aramaic terms, so it's probably in uh, the the in Gentile areas. In fact, as I indicated previously, this is probably written in the 90s, after all of the other disciples have been martyred, and it is also likely written from Ephesus, which was definitely a Greek city. So the tenth hour. If John followed Jewish time, this would mean it was 4 p.m. Here's Jewish time. Jewish time starts at 6 a.m., right? And then you count. First hour, 7 a.m., second hour, 8 a.m., third hour, 9 a.m. You follow me? So if you go to the 10th hour, you're at 4 p.m. Once you get to the 12th hour, you're in the first hour of the evening, if that makes sense. Roman time is like our time. You have midnight and you have noon, and you start counting over again at each one. So a.m. starts at what? Midnight. Okay? 1 a.m. That's the first hour. 2 a.m. That's the second hour of the night. Okay. All right? And then you get to noon, and now you've got 1 p.m., first hour of the of the day, second, and so forth. So many translations, in fact, I would say most translations think that this is using Jewish time, which would make it 4 p.m. However, a couple of important translations believe that this was Roman time, which I think would fit since this is written to Gentiles. If it's Roman time, it was 10 a.m. Well, that would make a little more sense when it said they came to spend the day with Jesus, right? So this may not seem all that important as an argument right now, but once we get to the passion at the end of John, it becomes more important. It becomes more significant, okay? All right, then what we see is that these first uh, disciples immediately lead others to Jesus. So here's John uh, 1, 40 through 42, one of the two, that's one of the two disciples of John the Baptist, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found Messiah, which translated means Christ. There's the, another translation. So Messiah, ha okay? Mashiach, that means anointed one, chosen one. Christos in Greek means the same thing, right? Then it says, He brought him to Jesus. That is, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, this, and we're going to have another translation here, is Kepha, Kepha, right? Cephas, Kepha, which is just an Aramaic name that means rock. Petros is the same thing, it's a Greek word. That means rock. Simon is his given name, right? Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John. That's who this is. Jesus changes his name from Simon to Kepha, Cephas, or Peter, right? Um, Boy, these kids get crazy up there. In the Gospel of John, Andrew uh, takes action three times. He takes action here. In John six eight, when he brings the boy to Jesus that has uh, the, the the fish and the loaves, and in twelve twenty two, when he brings the Greeks to Jesus, or actually he brings he brings the word Philip brings word to Andrew, and then Andrew talks to to Jesus. In all three instances, Andrew is always bringing somebody to Jesus. Be like Andrew. Who are you leading people to? Right. You're always talking about some celebrity that you're into, some musician. You're always leading people to try to follow a certain politician that you think is gonna save the world or something, right? Who are you leading people to? Um, Let's be like Andrew. Andrew's brother then is Simon, whose name Jesus changes to Cephas. Um, This is the man whom the Lord called to be the leader of the 12 apostles. Now, it's really interesting It's not entirely clear if Andrew led his brother to Jesus right there that same day, or if this is launching forward in time because Jesus goes to Galilee next, right? And Simon and Andrew are from Bethsaida in Galilee. So it's possible that this is just saying, hey, Andrew, that's the first thing he wanted to do, and so the next chance he had. But I have a theory here that I've developed today that I will present to you in just a moment about this. But the point is, Andrew immediately wanted to bring his brother to Jesus, right? And Peter is very important, but Peter wasn't a rock at this point in time. He was more of a wreck than a rock, all right? Uh, he was probably, he could be considered a rock if you think about he, him having a hard head. He was very hard-headed and very outspoken. He seemed to always be talking when he didn't need to be talking, right? But Jesus saw something in him that he would create, right? So he may have been a rock, hard-headed, but just like uh, Michelangelo took a block of stone and carved that beautiful statue of David into it, Jesus came along and took this rock-headed fisherman, this cursing fisherman, and carved on him for three, three and a half years and took him through the difficulty of the crucifixion where Peter turned against his master. He denied that he knew him three times, right? Right? And then Jesus restored him. And we'll see the restoration at the end of John when uh, after the resurrection, um, Peter did deny Jesus, but he didn't completely give up on Jesus, right? He was still with the 12 after Jesus' uh, death, after his crucifixion. And when the report came back that Jesus had risen from the dead, from the women, He immediately ran to the tomb with John, interestingly enough. And this is all from the Gospel of John. We'll see this at the end. And he didn't immediately believe, but Jesus showed himself to them. Peter believed. And then, as I said, Peter was restored. So it took quite a bit for Jesus to make Peter into what he wanted him to be. But Jesus already saw that in him. He saw that he would become strong, he would be stable, and he would be a leader. Jesus sees in you what he has called and created you to be. You just have to let him do his work with his chisel. This is the first time that Jesus is called Messiah. And as we've seen, the word means anointed one or chosen one. So from the beginning, those who followed Jesus hoped and some believed that he was the long awaited Savior of Israel. This faith was tested, however, when he was crucified. They would discover that as John had prophesied, that is, as John the Baptist had prophesied, he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he wasn't the one that came to release Israel from Roman domination. He came to save the world from sin's dominion, from bondage to sin and death and hell. Now let's look at John 1, 43 and 44. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they're all from this city, Bethsaida, which is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Elijah, can you look in that, uh, in that bin, uh, the, the uh, bin for Wednesday, I think, um, and you should see, uh, a couple of maps there that we put up there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they can kind of uh, see where that that city was. Um, but you see the you will see that they were probably down south in the Perea region. Okay, you see where it says Perea there. All right. In fact, you can see this um, you see this arrow right here that says uh, Jesus' route to baptism. So if Jesus was in Nazareth which he may or may not have been in Nazareth at this point, but we don't know. Um, Then he would have come down here to Bethany beyond the Jordan, which we think is right on the other side of the Jordan from Judea. You can see Jericho there. If you go uh, west or to your left, you see Jerusalem there and you see the other Bethany there. You see Bethlehem down there. Now go back up to uh, north and a bit east. you see Jericho, and then you go across the Jordan River, and there's Bethany beyond the Jordan right there, okay? Now, um, there's another map there. You can see the Sea of Galilee up there. There's another map there, Elijah, and it will will present the names of these other cities. Um, But you see the Sea of Galilee all the way up there. There it is. Okay, so now this is showing a, a much larger region, okay? Harder to see, but the Sea of Galilee is that is that blue uh, shape up there. And if you see all the way to the top, you can see Capernaum on the west side of the Jordan and Bethsaida on the east side of the Jordan, both on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is coming all the way from down here in this Perea region, and they're going all the way back up there to uh, Capernaum well, actually to Bethsaida first, okay? So now you see what's going on. Um, Let's talk about time once again. We mentioned this previously, um, but we're dealing with a very, very brief period of time. We were timeless when we were in the the prologue, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And as soon as we jump down into um, the testimony of John the Baptist, him speaking, then we're going one day at a time, Okay. So, according to William Barclay, the events of the first day were one nineteen through twenty-eight. That was when John spoke to the uh, the Levites, the priests, and the Pharisees. And the story of the second day is one twenty-nine through thirty-four. That's when he says introduces it by saying Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The third day is unfolded in one thirty-five through nine. The three verses in one forty through forty-two tell the story of the fourth day, and now we're in the fifth day, right? The events of the fifth day are told in 143 through 51, right? And then the sixth day is left blank. And when we get to the the uh, uh, the first miracle at Cana of Galilee, then we will be on the last day of the week, okay? Um, so now we're in the fifth day of the narrative. Jesus went to Galilee. Where was he previously? Well, apparently he was down there in Perea, Uh right there at Bethany beyond the Jordan. It would appear that he was staying in that area, at least for a brief period of time after his baptism. The town Jesus traveled to is Bethsaida, as I showed you, which is located on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. Uh, Jesus puts his base of operations in a house in Capernaum, right? So in the synoptic gospels, Jesus has an extensive Galilean ministry. And you can see Galilee up there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee in purple there, okay? Um, It's in purple because this was uh, the territory of Herod Antipas, right? Uh, King Herod Antipas, right? But that's where Jesus started his ministry is up in that area. Philip figures prominently in the Gospel of John and he's mentioned in the lists of the 12 in the synoptics. Jesus sought him out, Right, John the Baptist points to Jesus. The first two disciples go after Jesus. And then Simon gets his brother, Andrew, brings him to Jesus. And these people are seeking Jesus, but Jesus seeks Philip out. That's very interesting. Now, it's unclear if Philip was in Perea, Bethany beyond the Jordan, and went back to Galilee with Jesus, or if Jesus, after he traveled to Bethsaida, found him. Um it's unclear if they were in Galilee and in, in fact, when Philip found Nathanael, right? Because after uh, Jesus finds Philip, Philip immediately goes and finds Nathanael. So Philip is pulling an Andrew. Remember I told you, Andrew brought everybody to Jesus, brought his brother to Jesus. What's the first thing Philip does? Goes and brings somebody to Jesus. Are you bringing people to Jesus, right? So he goes and gets Nathanael. Well, we're not, it's, it's likely that that was in um, Bethsaida, But it's not clear in the text whether it is. It's it's not necessarily relevant, but something came to mind as I was looking at all of this. It may have been that they were all down there around John the Baptist at that point in time. Even though these others are not called John's disciples, they were still interested in hearing what he had to say. It's much like this revival that has been taking place, uh, that just concludes as, as of tonight anyway, uh, on the campus of uh, Asbury University. People are coming from everywhere to experience this. People were coming from everywhere to hear John preach, Right? And it wouldn't have been a one-shot deal. Hey, let's go hear you know, this guy preach a sermon for an hour and get baptized and then go back home. I mean, they would wanna know what was gonna happen. So it's possible, maybe even likely, that they were all right there in that Perean region right near Bethany beyond the Jordan listening to John preach. And he is setting up that the kingdom of God is at hand and the Messiah is, you know, is coming. Then he points to the Messiah. And so they all go get each other. And then Jesus says, okay, now let's go back to your home territory, which is what? Galilee, right? And that's where they go. So um, the point I want to make here though, regarding Philip and Jesus seeking Philip out is that it is Jesus' choice that makes all of the difference, right? Reminded by Jesus' seeking Philip that God's choice matters. Jesus told the disciples at the last supper table, this is John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Wait a minute. We just saw that Andrew and the other disciple walked up and chose Jesus. It doesn't mean that your choice is irrelevant. It means that your choice doesn't matter if God's choice isn't made, right? Jesus is reaching out to everyone. His call goes out to the entire world. If Jesus didn't beckon us and reach out to us, it would be irrelevant what we do, right? But he is calling you. He is reaching out to you. Whoever believes, whoever, whosoever will may come, right? But you gotta be paying attention. The call is going out, okay? What I think is important is that um, these men had an attitude of, of of a seeker. They were looking for something, for God to do something. And we need to have that same attitude. But it is the Lord's choice that matters. In theology, this is called prevenient grace. If Jesus doesn't choose me, I won't be able to be a disciple or be successful in the ministry, which he calls me. Whom he chooses, he equips and empowers. So I don't want you to get one of these... Uh, Calvinist ideas that, well, what if Jesus isn't choosing me? Listen, if you're able to choose the Lord Jesus, if you hear his call, you don't need to doubt and wonder and worry about things like that, okay? Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law. Notice, this isn't some new... uh, Figure, religious figure that's coming on the scene, right? Jesus is prophesied; he's spoken of in the law. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote. Jesus, the son of Joseph. That's the first time we hear this. Jesus is uh, the son of Joseph, so this is his flesh and blood. I call Joseph his stepfather. I had a stepfather, and he was really responsible for raising me as a young uh, teenage boy. Um, I'm thankful that he was there, but I don't have his genetics, right? Jesus is the son of God. It's very clear in this scripture that he is, but he's the son of Joseph because Joseph was his adopted father or his stepfather, however you want to look at it. He says, uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good be from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So once again, you know, (laughs) Jesus says, come and see. Philip says, come and see. Where are you staying, Jesus? Come and see. Uh, Is, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see. See for yourself, right? You don't have to believe somebody else's word, Listen to their word, let that, you know, set your hope and then go and see for yourself. There it is. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him or said about him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, let me pause there. You saw a an imaginative account in the film clip of Nathaniel under the fig tree, and you know he had the phylactery on his hand, so he was you know presumably uh, uh, praying or or he was uh, reciting. Uh, scripture, you know perhaps the Shema. We don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. but apparently he was praying or contemplating um, about the Messiah, the Son of God, okay And Jesus knew that, right? It was revealed to him by the Spirit that that was happening. and Nathaniel's amazed that Jesus understands his heart. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And of course, this is where my film clip cut out. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, a double amen. That's the first time we've encountered that. When Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying amen, amen. Pay attention. It's important what he's about to say. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So once again, we find this disciple brings someone else to Jesus. Um, Nathaniel is spoken of only once more at the end of John's gospel and nowhere else. So it's interesting. Philip is spoken of often in John's gospel but he's really not spoken of in the synoptics except Philip is in the list of the 12 apostles, okay? Nathanael is spoken of three times uh, in uh, John's gospel, okay? But he's not spoken of at all in the synoptic gospels. We, we meet Nathanael at the beginning and we hear of Nathanael again at the end. Nathanael is one of the ones who is out fishing with Peter when Jesus restores Peter, Okay. However, this is interesting. I was reading uh, a sermon uh, by John Wesley, the founder of uh, the Methodist Church, and it was about uh, being a, a. it was based on Nathaniel being a, uh, an Israelite in whom is no guile. And he was beginning to talk about how we need to be free of deceit and free of guile. And in his introduction, that is in Wesley's introduction, he said this. It was generally believed by the ancients that he, that is Nathaniel, is the same person who is elsewhere termed Bartholomew, one of our Lord's apostles and one that in the enumeration of them both by St. Matthew and St. Mark is placed immediately after St. Philip. Well, that makes sense, right? Philip is the one that brought Nathanael to Jesus. So if Bartholomew is the same as Nathanael, and you say, well, wait a minute. Why does he have two names? Well, Simon, Peter, huh? Okay, Uh, but listen to this. Um, This is a, uh, Nathanael was a name common among the Jews, and his other name, Bartholomew, meaning only the son of Ptolemy, Bar-Ptolemy. Simon Bar-Jonah. You can call him Bar-Jonah, okay? So apparently, uh, if this is accurate, then Bartholomew was uh, often formally uh, referred to as Bartholomew and perhaps... Um, his uh, surname or his given name is um, Nathaniel. Okay, so Jesus calls Nathaniel an Israelite in whom is no deceit or guile. In other words, Nathaniel was the same on the inside as he was on the outside. Are you? Are you the same inside and out, or do you hide things? Well, all of us. We don't need to be completely transparent. Okay, we need to be honest, but that doesn't mean you need to bear your whole soul to everybody all the time. But um. We do need to be the same inside and out. Um, I've used this example for years, going all the way back to when I was, I was uh, forced to go purse shopping with a certain person. Purse shopping. There's never been a more exhausting time for a male than purse shopping. But this person that I'm referring to really, really likes this type of purse called a Junie and Burke. Have you heard of this purse? Junie and Burke. Okay. But here's the thing. I have plenty of cheap leather bags. Okay. And what you'll find is if there is a color on that bag, all right, and it's a cheap bag. Now, I'm not making fun of you if you have a cheap leather bag, man. I'm all about it. Okay. Okay. But I'm just showing you the difference, okay? The dye is on the outside. It's kind of like painted, but the inside won't be the same. A Dunian Burke purse is dyed all the way through, inside and out. That's you, my sisters. You need to be dyed all the way through with the Spirit of Christ. Not just a veneer, not just a show. Hey, I'm at church. Everything's fine. Social media. My life is wonderful. It's awesome. Look at all these things I have and do. Right? (laughs) (laughs) We're falling apart on the inside. Okay? Nathaniel's the same inside and out. Okay. People are rare, rarely honest today. People are rarely guileless today. We're all amateur politicians looking for votes. We're all building our brand on social media, right? Wow. So we show others what we think they want to see unless we don't like them and don't want their vote of confidence, and then we show them something that, yeah. We need more Nathaniels today. To be guileless, guileless. to be free of guile is to be simple to offer honest criticism, to speak and act without personal agenda. In short, to be free of guile is to be full of truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth. So he appreciated Nathaniel. Now, I said that we're living in a, a guileful uh, era. But there's evidence that this may be changing among some of our young people. The recent outpouring of revival at various college campuses. And by the way, it's spreading all around. Uh, There's a group of students sitting outside. I saw a picture at Baylor University. Uh, Texas A&M had a, uh, a, you know, a spontaneous revival. The fact is, it's just these kids confessing sin and praying together, right? There's honesty there right? There's honesty about what they're going through and what they're dealing with, and there's honesty about their need for Jesus. So I, I pray this continues. I pray this becomes the Nathaniel generation. Well, uh, an example of Nathaniel's honesty occurs right away when he openly shared his disdain for Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth, he said? Apparently, the city didn't have a good reputation. Well, that could have been merely due to its small size or its lack of significance, like the Messiah is coming from Nazareth. What? I thought it came from Bethlehem. Well, we know from the synoptics, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and moved to Nazareth. But the town certainly demonstrated its xenophobic bent when Jesus pointed out that God went outside Israel to find those who would honor his prophets. Jesus spoke and they were amazed. And then Jesus said, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. The miracles that we have heard, you have done in these other cities. Why don't you do them here? And then Jesus went into this, uh, he quoted several stories where God had to go outside of Israel to find somebody that believed. Talked about Naaman the leper. Uh, talked about uh, the woman uh, that, uh, that the prophet went to uh, who uh, cared for Elijah here it is in Luke 4:24 through 30. But he said truly I say to you no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for 3 years and 6 months when a severe famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. This, this would not have been a good place, right? For these, you know, very very nationalistic Jews, this would have been horrible to say. Okay, Elijah was sent only to Zarephath to a woman who was a widow. And there were many with leprosy in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. So Elisha is Elijah's successor. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, Naaman from Syria, a pagan. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and brought him to the crest of the hill on which their city had been built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's Nazareth. Great folks, huh? But he passed through their midst and went on his way. So Nathaniel wasn't courteous with his comment nor was he trying to be contentious. He was just honest. Nazareth is not a great place. Well, the Lord knew Nathaniel even before they met. Uh, He had spiritual prophetic insight into what was going on in Nathaniel's heart and life. you know, again, they had this fanciful presentation in the movie, but we don't know what was going on under the fig tree. We just know that Jesus knew Nathaniel's heart, right? And he hits it with his double amen. This is the first time we see it in John's gospel. We don't know when Nathaniel witnessed this uh, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man because John doesn't record it. However, the reference is to is all the more significant because Jesus is likening himself to Jacob's ladder. Okay, this was a vision that Jacob saw near the town of what became Bethel, where angels were ascending and descending on a ladder and God was over the, above them speaking to the patriarch Jacob in a dream. So Jesus is saying that he is going to open a portal to heaven. Guess what? That's the only way you're getting there. That's the only way I'm getting there, right? Jesus is the only one that's come down from heaven, and that went back up into heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way we're gonna get there. So uh, that, I think, is a good reason for the purpose of that uh, double amen. As with Nathaniel, the Lord knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts and prayers. And he's the only one that can fulfill your deepest longings. The Lord promised to fill all of your desires with good things, that's Psalm 37.4. Well, I'm sorry, that's uh, Psalm 103.5. He promised to give you the desires of your heart if you take delight in him. That's Psalm 37.4. The question is, will you believe? If so, you may witness heaven open and God pour out his spirit upon you. And I pray that that's exactly what he does. I wanna see an outpouring of his spirit on our community and on our nation. And I pray it in Jesus' name. If you would like to give us feedback, uh, you can go to our website, lifewellchurch.com, and you will find uh, on the main page there's a feedback tab, and you can click that. You can fill out that form. Uh, You can give us feedback. You can ask for prayer requests, all sorts of things like that. I hope that you are able to do this. We have a text service uh, that I use to send out information on our church throughout the week. And uh, basically all you need to do is text the word LifeWell. From your phone to nine four zero zero zero, and if you do that, it'll drop you into that news text list, and you'll get a couple of those texts uh, from us every week.